it took us four years to pay back the two bad years in 16 and 17. Uh, and we don't have a huge war chest. You know, we literally, we started from nothing. We yeah. took our 401ks, we drained them, got a government loan, rented a farm. This is the Real Food, Real People podcast. This week's guest says he's doubling down on local food, going all in with his family and his community, betting on the future of local dairy products near Seattle. His story is awesome, but it's not as easy as you might think local food should be. And he'll explain why. This is the Real Food, Real People podcast. I'm Dylan Honkoop. Our sponsors are the Dairy Farmers of Washington and Mana Insurance Group. We're inviting you today to meet Ryan Mansonidas in Enumclaw, Washington, just outside of Seattle, and find out about the incredible project that he's working on with Providence Farms and Mount Rainier Creamery. So you guys here are all about local food. Like, you grew up around farming, from what I understand, left and came back because that's your passion. Yeah, so I grew up on a dairy farm maybe an hour from here. Uh, they produced and processed their own milk, sold it to the local community up in Tacoma. And um, when I graduated, I didn't really see a future in it. My dad ran the facility for his uncle, so we didn't really have any ownership. I uh, went to Washington State, started off in agriculture, um, ended up actually getting my degree in public relations and marketing, um, ended up going down to California, going to work for a large feed company, selling to dairies, doing nutrition work. Um, ended up getting married down there, met my awesome wife. Uh, we moved shortly after getting married up to the Skagit Valley, and I did uh, dairy nutrition work and sales up there, and then um, was just not at rest. Um, going from farm to farm, seeing some great operators, and just felt called to get back into farming. And so God opened a lot of pathways to uh, get this place started. Um, it's kind of why the name is Providence Farms. Mm. Um, a lot of God's providence to make this thing happen. A lot of uh, things had to happen all at once in order to get the doors open here. And uh, actually, um, two days from now, it'll be 10 years that we moved on to the place, uh, March 12th, wow. 2012. So, uh, yeah, I'm a uh, fifth generation. My grandfather was a dairy farmer in Holland, um, immigrated here in 53. Uh, I had five uncles at one point that were farming, two cousins. Uh, at this point, I have one uncle and two cousins still farming, and then uh, us. So, uh, ironically, my grandfather was, um, he had a little store, and he milked cows, and so he was his own producer, processor, and retailer. Yeah. And so, with what we're trying to do, we're actually going to full circle back to that, which is um, was kind of cool. My my aunt is actually trying to find a picture of my grandfather in front of his store to send us, and we hope he does, so that we can put that up in our store, um, just kind of as an iconic deal. Carrying on a family tradition. We hope so, uh, except for the going out of business part. We hope that <laughs> we start a new tradition with yeah. being sustainable and uh, being able to do this for quite some time. Yeah, talk more about your passion for this. You said you, you wanted to get back into it. You're around the farming world, but you weren't farming yourself. Why? I guess, you know, there could be a lot of reasons why people would get into it. I mean, farmers would laugh at this. Well, you could get into it to make money, you know, just from a business perspective. See, yeah. I told you you'd laugh. But there obviously has to be so much more to it than that for you guys. I think for us, um, honestly, I felt called just, I, I uh, deep down inside me, I just felt called to do it. Um, so when we answered that, but then we, we, you know, when we got thinking about that, 
What does that mean? Um, I had been selling to dairy farmers for almost 15 years before we started this farm. And um, so few of them were happy with what they were doing, not because of the work that they were doing or working with the animals or the cows, but just the fact that they were doing it with such a small return. And also the fact that they felt like they were producing food, but then being attacked Mm. on their character, on their morals, their ethics, on basically everything they did, especially on the cattle side or the, the animal side of things. Um, so when Haley and I started talking, um, we actually moved to Enumclaw, which is not where you would move if you were trying to start a farm. Mm. Uh, since we started in 2012, there was 22 farms on the plateau, and today I think there's uh, nine left, mm. and that's just in 10 years. Uh, 20 years ago, there was, um, I, I believe, 140. Um, so, and I could have, that could be wrong, but I know that it was um, significantly higher. And so people are like, well, why would you move to an area that's dying? And I, and I think the main reason is that Enumclaw is literally 40 minutes outside of Seattle. Uh, Bonnie Lake and several of the other little communities that are around us are becoming um, basically towns that feed Seattle. And so mm. one of the things that I saw in all the years of my consulting and sales was that there's not a good enough connection between the farmer and the, con- the customer. Uh, outside sources were telling our stories as opposed to ourselves. Mm. Uh, most of the farmers I met are really good at farming, but not very good at uh, meeting the public and explaining what they're doing and helping the public understand. And so we chose Enumclaw, number one, to be close to the Seattle market because we've always had a passion to try to um, be vertically integrated. But also we wanted to be able to bring people in and say, hey, this is why we have lockups, not to hurt our animals, but to get them in a position to where my employees won't be hurt and to be able to treat them and give them their vaccinations without them getting hurt and to be able to manage them in a safe way for both uh, myself, my employees, and our animals. And being able to explain that to people, we've had several tours on the farm here with people from Seattle and from Amazon and Costco and all kinds of things. Mm. And when you sit down and you actually tell a consumer that's never been on a farm, that has no understanding, and all they're seeing is this outside source that doesn't come from farmers, uh, most of them are like, wow, that makes total sense. That's logical, and I have a way better feeling about this. So you say lockups, you mean like the, the locking stanchions. That's correct. That the cows are going in. They're obviously not locked right now because they can go in and out as yeah. they please. And, and, and ironically, you know, they're, they're called stanchions. We call them lockups. But literally, we lock the cows up for like 15 minutes a day. And while we lock them up, they don't even realize they're locked up. Um, and that is, again, just to do quick herd checks, health checks, um, pregnancy checks, vaccinations, uh, all that kind of stuff. And so, yeah, I mean, the cows, if, if you see them right now, I don't know if you can on these film or not, but they're literally just going in and out. Yeah. And there's no stress, and they're just sitting here doing their thing. So, but that, that's something that some people view badly. I mean, I grew up around dairy farming like this, so I understand what they're used for, and I know that cows aren't always kept in that. They're just, you know, like you said, for health checks and things like that. But you're saying that some people... That's kind of a, a sticking, one of the, their sticking points about dairy? There's a lot of false information, whether it's um, stanchions or freestalls or, um, I mean, you can go down a list. 
And it's really just um, folks just not understanding the functionality. Yeah. Um, we have a lot more animal units on, on a, a facility, and so we have to be very efficient with our space and labor. And so we've, we've designed things in the dairy industry with the cow focused first, um, and then with labor and um, resources next. And so most of your dairies you'll see are set up quite the same. And basically it's with the cow comfort first and then functionality second. And, you know, a lot of folks have kind of a, uh, a thought on farming that it's just this beautiful thing. And if you're a farmer, you'll say, yes, it is a beautiful thing. There's days where I'm just in awe that I get to do this. Um, but it's a business also, and our livelihoods come from it. And so just like a manufacturing or a restaurant, we have to put systems in place that make us efficient and keeping the cow's health and our employees' safety uh, in the front part of that dis- discussion. So you talk about attacks. Like what kind of stuff? What, what goes on? Oh, for instance, we, um, we take our calves and, and uh, after a day with their mother, then we are putting them in uh, individual hatches. Uh, and COVID has actually been very interesting. Uh, not, I shouldn't even say COVID. It's a, it's a four-letter word. But um, COVID has been interesting because people now understand quarantine. And people now understand um, keeping space and animals and people safe. Social distancing. Social distancing. <laughs> and so yeah. essentially what we're doing is we're putting an animal in a smaller, uh, more of a safe quarantine situation. So that that animal, we can maintain them and keep them safe and prevent them from disease. Um, particularly, I have Jersey cows, and uh, Jersey calves are born uh, very frail um, just because of the nature of the animal, and so they take a lot more to keep healthy. And so uh, we've actually had people drive onto our farm and start screaming at us about locking our calves up in jails. Mm. And so I've always offered, I said, hey, can we have a discussion? Would you like to come out and see the animals? Could you, you know, would yeah. you like to see that they're not stressed out? And some people have taken me up on it. Other people haven't. Um, and so we enjoy, you know, I'm always open to have a conversation and say, hey, this is why we do this. So people actually came out here to the farm to yell at you for that. Yeah, we've had people drive down the lane um, and come in and very impolitely give us a piece of their mind on private property, which is very interesting. That'd yeah. be like uh, me walking into your house yeah. and start telling you about how I don't like the way you're using your sink. <laughs> or the way you're handling your dog. No um, kidding. That's crazy. It's very interesting. Um, I would say the majority of the folks that we're around um, are supportive, uh, especially in this key, this community, Enumclaw, the, the folks have been great. Yeah. Um, I'm very grateful for where we're at. Um, and so I would say that those folks are the minority. Unfortunately, the minority has a huge voice hmm. that they uh, are megaphoning across the country. And that's... Part of what my wife and I are really trying to uh, help with is that basically, hey, we are farmers, we're fifth generation farmers, and this is why we're doing things. And and you know, if you have questions, we'd love to answer it for you. And you know, be a voice for the farmer as opposed to these megaphone folks that you know are in yeah. opposition to us. F- few people who make a lot of noise is what you're saying. What what is the noise that they're making? You know, like what kind of stuff are they shouting through this megaphone which probably in this day and age is a lot of social media and stuff like that well uh well a perfect example is uh the methane and cows are basically destroying our our atmosphere and 
Um, actually, if you look at what we're doing with our uh, no-till f- farming and our grass farming and our grazing, um, the amount of uh, carbon sequestration that my property does um, would be astounding to someone if they actually wanted to sit down with me and walk through the math. Um, and so those are things that you're being told throughout the bulk of conventional media that, you know, my cows are causing an issue for the world. And, and what people don't realize is that for a long time, even before I started this, farmers have been doing practices and putting practices in place that actually sequester carbon like crazy. And we're actually beneficial to the environment. Um, that's part of the reason with the creamery that we're going to be starting, uh, we're going to go with glass bottles. Uh, the other thing is, is the farm here to the retail store will be only two miles apart. So our carbon footprint that we're going to be doing on this farm here is going to be significantly reduced. And that's a big passion and goal of ours, too. Um, we're a new age of farmer. We've, you know, and I would say if you go and talk to a lot of farmers, a lot of them are, have had college educations. Um, they have worked for many other companies. Uh, myself, I work for a multi-million dollar company that's nationwide and, and in a couple countries before this. And you basically come to realize that, yeah, there's a ways that you can do things better. Uh, there's ways that we can help the environment. And so we are, as a young couple, young, I'm 42. We were young when we started 10 years ago. I, I'm not going to say we're old, but we're not young. Um, but in the dairy industry, we are young because I think yeah. the average age is 65 or no, 69. I, I, Something I like that. I've heard numbers in the 60s. I forget. I think, far- I think farmers are 59 and I think dairy farmers are 69. <laughs> So I guess we are still young farmers. Um, and that in and of itself is telling and sad. Uh, it's been such a difficult thing that we're not getting the next generation into it. And so we are an anomaly, uh, especially that we started from scratch. We got a farm service agency loan. We rented a farm. Um, no family money, money put in, no farming equipment or cows. Um, we are really a strange oddity in the industry. And we've been blessed by a lot of people and helped by a lot of people. Um, and so... To answer your question that you started off with a long time ago is um, it's things like that where there's really a misunderstanding of what we're doing. There's an underrepresentation of the good we're doing for the environment as well. And um, we've put a lot of things in place. We work, uh, Haley and I work very closely with the National Resource Conservation Service, um, which, by the way, dairy farmers have to have a state and federal plan put in place that is monitored by both the state and the federal level. Mm. But those programs also plan for just for our manure, Mm. our waste, um, application rates. Uh, We have to take soil samples every year to make sure that we are not poisoning the soil or over fertilizing. Um, We have buffers from water zones and creeks. Um, You'd be amazed how regulated dairy is on the same token. Uh, in the last 20 years, the folks that have put a lot of these regulations realize that they're also cumbersome financially. And so the federal government and state and local agencies have started giving money to farmers to implement some of these practices. I know ourselves on this dairy, we've implemented almost a half a million dollars worth of practices mm. that we've matched funds mm. to, better, uh, to be better stewards of the ground mm. and to come into compliance. We've been in compliance. We've always been in compliance, but we want to be on the front end. So what, what kind of projects do you do? I so, mean, you mentioned like buffers, like planting trees and stuff along streams. So we've or? done a lot of no-till seeding. We've done a lot of liming. Um, and liming is a good practice just in general. 
Uh, we'll continue to do that without funds. Um, we've put in walkways. We've put in water to our pastures, uh, water lines and water troughs, so the cows don't have to go as far for water. Um, one of the biggest projects we're doing right now that we just got funded for is we're putting in a 1.8 million gallon uh, waste storage facility, mm. which will allow us to take our current waste storage facility and gather rainwater so we can fer- uh, irrigate during the summer. Mm. And so we can use a, a natural occurring uh, product from, from heaven yeah. and uh, use it in the summer, especially like last year we had a drought and 112 degrees on June 30th. Yeah. Um, we'll be able to, to work through those things. Uh, the other thing we're doing is on uh, one of the farms that we rent together and work through with the Washington Farmland Trust, we're actually putting a pivot in to the largest piece of property that was saved in Pierce County ever like by a conservation a, group. Like a center pivot irrigation we're system? We're putting a center pivot irrigation pivot mm. on a farm that was basically dormant for 20 years. Mm. Uh, we've spent the last seven years, the first three, getting it converted to organic. Mm. The next four, um, reconditioning the fields, getting them replanted, um, dealing with elk, which, by the way, mm. if anybody out there is listening, please help with that. Mm. Um, and, yeah, we're, we're working with the National Resource Conservation Service, and actually we're working with Pierce County, and we're going to be fully funded for a pivot project, um, which will significantly improve the productivity of that property. Mm. Um, and it's really cool because uh, Washington Farmland Trust, which used to be PCC Farmland Trust, mm. has saved a lot of ground. But not all of that ground has been utilized the way that they would like because mm. of some infrastructure issues. And so we're super excited to be working with NRCS and Pierce County to put this pivot in and maximize this ground that they save specifically for farming in Pierce County. Uh, it's a 300-acre piece of property that will never become houses, mm. that will always be farm ground forever. And we're part of that, and that makes Haley and I feel really awesome. And we have great partners with Pierce County, the Washington Farmland Trust, and NRCS. And so that's it's just this really cool synergistic thing that we don't tell that story enough Mm. um and so that's again part of what we're excited to do and why we're meeting with you today love what you're doing um enjoy just watching your farmers talk about what they're doing and it's just nice to have a voice again and so we appreciate that yeah well you know every time i go to talk with somebody i learn more things like who who knew you know nobody knows all of these things that are going on behind the scenes, the back of the field to improve this or, you know, steward that. It helps to start hearing those stories and, and actually know what's going on. Well, let me be clear. I mean, in the past, if you go back 30, 40 years, there was abuses happening. And so, mm. so these rules and regulations, like a lot of times, rules and regulations are a good thing when they're common sense. And what I've really come to appreciate is that there was a huge pendulum swing to where there was so much regulation and no help to the farmer, and it put a lot of farmers out of business in the 80s and 90s. Fortunately, the powers that be have realized that that doesn't work. And, oh, by the way, we need to feed a lot of people in this country, so we need farmers. And so, again, we've been able to partner and get funds available to be able to implement these projects. And let me say this, too. If, if I'm not doing a good job with my ground... I don't put up good feed, and I lose money as a business owner. Um, and so it behooves it for us to be good stewards in general because there is a financial aspect to that as well. Um, but, again, farmers love what they do. It's a 24-7, 365. Um, it's not for the faint of heart. And there's days that I experience things that other people don't. 
Um, I don't have to drive to work right now. I get to walk out my front door. Yeah. Um, but I also have to get up in the middle of the night if I got a cow that's sick. <laughs> yeah. uh, if we have a storm and blows half my calf hutches away and half my barn away, those are things that we deal with that other folks don't. Yeah. Um, each industry has its own issues. And so overall, we're blessed to do what we do, but it, it comes at a cost. And we have to do things right in order to stay in business. I have four sons that I hope they find their own way and do what they love and find their passion. But if one or all of them want to come back to this, I would like to have something uh, for them to take hold on if they want to. Um, Another reason why we're going into the creamery and the vertical integration, because long-term that I think is going to be the salvation of this farm. Mm. I just wanted to take a quick moment here to thank our sponsors. Mana Insurance Group is one, and they're in their second season of supporting the Real Food, Real People podcast and our conversations about the real people behind our food here in Washington State. Mana Insurance Group was founded here in Washington State by a high school classmate of mine. So I know these folks very well. I know several other people in the company as well. That's where I do my insurance stuff, and they do everything across the board, home, life. They'll help you with your health insurance, uh, farms, businesses, you name it, and probably a lot of other things I'm not even thinking of here. But Mana Insurance Group, manainsurancegroup.com is a great supporter of this podcast, and I'd encourage you to check them out as well. Again, on their website, manainsurancegroup.com, where they're all about planning ahead to protect your financial future, not just reacting when something bad happens. Also, Dairy Farmers of Washington supporting this podcast, and you'll hear us mention them a little bit later in our conversation, me and Ryan, talking about the Dairy Farmers of Washington. They support real stories like these uh, of the people producing dairy products here in Washington State. They're real people, and they do amazing things, but a lot of people haven't heard their stories. WaDairy.org is their website, and you can learn a lot more about Washington Dairy, its benefits, the people producing it, how they care for their animals, etc. Again, wadairy.org is their website. Go check it out and also thank them for supporting stories like these here on the Real Food, Real People podcast as we continue our journey across Washington State to get to know the real people behind our food. And now back to the conversation. So you want to grow food, milk, dairy products, cheese, yogurt, you name it, all the different things that you know, the milk from these cows becomes in a way that benefits the local area is is what you're trying to do. Because right now the system that you go, you know, your milk goes into doesn't necessarily just stay nearby, right? So we we are partnered with uh, Organic Valley and they've been a great partner. Um, They help us get our start. Uh, And in fact, we're going to continue to work with them even um, as we get this other operation going. We've actually, my wife and I have gone back to D.C. and uh, we've uh, met with several of our Congress folks and senators and we've really um, worked hard to uh, advocate for uh, organics and, and, and as a whole. Um, so what, what we found in, in networking and being part of these different groups and these different boards is that um, there's a lot of consolidation in the marketplace and with consolidation comes less options for farmers and um 
And then a lot of the big companies and corporations have vertically integrated, and it leaves very, very little space for a small operator who has a passion to farm. Mm. And so part of what we're trying to do is, number one, we need to be more financially sustainable. And so vertical integration gives us more margin. Um, it also helps us be in control of more of our vision and passion. Uh, we really do want to work on the carbon footprint of our operation. The third thing, and this is where we really have a passion, and we're not quite sure how it's all going to play out yet, but we're in the process of talking to a lot of different businesses, is either you have to be large enough to supply 100 stores in this area, or you have to spend every weekend, five days a weekend, and that's right, a weekend, five days a weekend, which doesn't make sense, and you have to go to every farmer's market that you can find and pay fees and try to sell your product. And so part of what our goal with our creamery and our market is that, one, we'll vertically integrate and make ourselves more sustainable, and number two, we'll offer a place for more small, local, and truly local. Uh, that's one of the issues, too, that I've found is that uh, retailers and different outlets use the word local and they use the, the, you know, the pictures of us farmers. Um, but this, it's almost a false narrative at times. And I'm not going to go blast the retailers. Uh, they are serving a purpose in our country and to our society and to our communities. Uh, we would just like to actually take those words and put uh, value behind them and make them true. And so that's a huge passion of what we're trying to do. Um, yeah, and so you asked about products. I mean, for us to start off, we're going to be doing glass-bottled milk, uh, cream, and then we'll be doing some flavored milks, which we're excited about. And then uh, we'll be doing some local ice cream, which uh, the feedback we're getting on that, people are very excited about. And then we'll be doing butter. Uh, cheese would probably be phase two. Uh, it's a big piece to learn. Yeah. And we're already learning a lot. And so we'll probably be a couple years out from that. But there's a lot of art that goes into making there cheese. Is. There's, yeah. there's almost more art than there is technique. Yep. Uh, and, there, and the cool part about that is even here locally, there's a small little creamery called Fontella Creamery, and they make their own cheese. And we've already been in contact with them and said, hey, would you like a consistent source to retail your cheese? And so we're, you know, it's situations like that that we're really looking forward to. And I don't have to reinvent the wheel, and I don't have to learn all the processes. There's a lot of small operations that are already doing it awesome. Uh, there's another opportunity with a little company called Simple Goodness. Um, they're making these uh, syrups that they use for mixing drinks and doing different things. And they are just this awesome two sisters that started this thing from scratch. They've been working their tails off. We're looking forward to partnering with them and they're just right here in Wilkerson, which is just down the road from our store. Um, it's stuff like that that my wife and I, we just we get really excited about. How it's all going to shake out, we've got a lot to learn, but um, we're getting really good responses so far. You talk about this divergence, you know, the way the situation in our food system is right now, either really small can work for people doing like the farmer's market thing or big. Yes. And you're trying to chart that middle, like the medium, like we're going to produce enough to make affordable food for a decent amount of people in our region. Yes. How, how do you do that? And, and why don't more, I think you kind of explained it, but I'll, I'll just bring this up again. Why don't more people do that? Why, why, why is it all about get big these days? What pushes that? Well, so when we originally started, we wanted to be about 150 cows. And I'm at 300 milking cows today. We manage almost 600 heads start to finish. Um, we're doing it well. Um, 
but our profit margin is almost the same. Mm. Uh, what I found is that we just have more employees. We have more feed costs. Um, we have just more costs in general. And so what my wife and I make uh, just as a personal living has not changed in 10 years. <laughs> now, I'm thankful we employ more people and we, we gainfully employ people. We pay well for the industry. Um, and so that's a blessing to our community right there. Uh, we support a lot of other businesses through this. But to answer your question on the immediate side of it is, why don't more people do this? Because regulations are massively cumbersome. Hmm. Uh, and I'll, I can walk through a couple different things of that. Um, and two, it's, it's very expensive. So to put it in perspective for your listeners or viewers, um, this project, if it goes along with the way we hope it does, it, it's going to be a million dollars. Uh, we're going to put in about a half a million dollars into the processing plant, and we're going to put another half a million dollars into the retail location. And that does not include the purchase of the, the building that we purchased last year. And so if you look at what I gross every year, we gross a million and a quarter and we're just going to put a million dollars into this new facility. Um, we don't have a million dollars. I don't yeah, know. Because that's gross. That's not yeah, what I you keep. <laughs> I don't know enough rich folks. Um, I'm not enough of those circles to just ask a buddy. Um, and so what we've done, and again, this is where I think some of the things that we've done as a government have been a good thing. So we're working with the Farm Service Agency, and the Farm Service Agency is going to give us uh, loans. And I want to make this very clear. These are loans that we pay back with interest. And so this is an example where I think this is their tax dollars spent well because we're going to take this loan of a half a million dollars and we're going to build our plant and put our equipment in. Um, cool part of that story is we're actually, there's a little processing plant that went out of business down south we're being able to help her by purchasing her equipment so she doesn't take a total loss. We're going to create six or seven jobs just in that uh, little facility there, which is exciting. And then um, when we are able to ship that to our retail location, we're going to add another 10 or 12 jobs there. And those are both in the little communities that we both live in. Uh, our farm is in the little community of Enumclaw, and, and two miles away across the river, our store will be in Buckley. And so we'll be in two counties and two towns, and we'll add meaningful jobs in both those towns. Um, but it is very expensive. And so FSA is, is covering half of it. And then we're getting some through the Small Business Administration. Um, and that's another government program. That's a little more difficult because they work through the banks directly. Mm. And talking about roadblocks, uh, unless you have a lot of money, the bank doesn't really want to lend you money. And so we're constantly having to revalidate ourselves and reshow the things and that side of the process has been the longest uh the other thing is is we we applied through the washington state department of agriculture and they have what they call a value-added producer grant and so we worked with the northwest ag business center up in mount vernon and we applied for that grant and while i'd like to take credit Haley and i uh, most of the work was done by the folks up at uh northwest ag business center hmm. um, and we were awarded a two hundred fifty thousand dollars value-added grant for once we start operation that will really be tremendous for our success. Um, we've also just applied with those folks as well for a rural development grant for the store side um, because we will be developing part of the rural yeah. community there. And again, not only will we create somewhere between 10 and 14 jobs at the store, by carrying these small businesses, we know of at least three more jobs that will be created through the fact that they can sell product year-round. Mm. And so our little 
vertically integrated uh, plant and store doesn't just impact our business. It's also going to impact a lot of other small businesses that ship to us. And, and that's when you start talking about what do we get excited about. That's what we get excited about. But, yes, regulations and funding. Yeah, you were saying regulations are one of the reasons why farms get bigger, but don't big farms have to follow the regulations too? So um, the best example I can give you is, is the processing plant side. Um, there's a tremendous amount of regulation, so people can feel safe about milk. Uh, it's one of the most heavily regulated products in the country that you eat. Uh, I'm regulated three different ways at the farm here, and I'm regulated in the processing plant again. And then there's regulations on how we store it and sell it at the retail store. Um, it's very cumbersome. And so what happens is large businesses can actually hire a person or a team of people to basically spend their whole day being in compliance with regulations. You're talking about my wife and I, mm-hmm. and we will have some folks in key positions that will help, but I have to run the farm uh, as far as the ground is concerned and figure out our planting and our fertilizing and work with the state agencies to do that. We have to then work with the state agencies to make sure that our milk is a grade A permitted uh, and manage my employees here. And also, oh, by the way, we have all these cows, 600 head, to make sure that they're healthy and safe. And then we have the processing plant, which will then be regulated again. And we have to make sure we're compliant with all of our employees and HR and the state. And then we're going to have the retail store. And so, yeah, that's cumbersome because that is up to my wife and I. And I'll be honest, my wife does the bulk of a lot of that stuff. And it's, uh, we didn't go to school for that. We're learning as we go. Um, Sometimes you have three different people that have to regulate you and there'll be a topic and each one of them has a different rule. And if you're in compliance with one, you're not in compliance with the other. And so you got to do this dance and... um, that gets that's that can be extremely frustrating. So you think just structurally, systemically, that's part of the system just yes. favors bigger operations and is stacked against smaller, medium size. Yes, and I and I would give you a perfect example. We we would love to process and carry meat in our store, but we have not been able to figure out a way to do it. Uh, and that's because there's federal law that's put in place that um, basically trumps all state law, and so. There's basically four meat packing companies that uh, package 80% of all the meat in the United States. Um, I've had a tremendous number of people reach out to Haley and I to do beef this year, mm. and we can't get it processed. Um, and so there's we know where to take it to get it. There's one cut. USDA uh, facility that you can process a, an animal with and sell it retail in in the local area. And there's another one on the east side. Otherwise, you have to go down to Oregon. And the cost there is um, very prohibitive. Um, and so when you have a processing plant that has three people hired, and that's all they do, and they can spread that cost and part of its efficiencies, but the rules have been set in place to benefit the large people and not the small people. Hmm. Um, unfortunately, this year alone, there's been two small processors of organic milk in the state of Washington that have been in business for I know at least over 10 years, and I think 20, a couple of them, that were put out of business this year by regulation. And so... Um, Why? How? How, you know, how does somebody get put out of... I, not to get into their nitty-gritty specifics. I, I don't know all the details. I, I just I, makes it too expensive? or Well, so, so what ends up happening is they get new regulation, and then basically you have to update all your equipment. I just told you a, a couple of minutes ago, we're putting in a half a million dollars worth of equipment. 
Now, could you imagine in two years that they changed the regulation and now I got to put another half a million dollars worth of equipment? It's things like that that don't make a lot of sense. Uh, I understand intentions behind them, mm-hmm. and you can appreciate that, um, but there's not a lot of common sense at times. Um, and so I don't know all the nitty-gritty on both those situations. I do know the folks, and they're good people, and they've worked hard. I know that they're in business for a long time, and now magically they're not. Mm. Um, that'll hopefully create an opportunity for us, but it's a sad way for us to have an opportunity. Well, that's what keeps coming up time and again with this podcast as I talk with local farmers, but other people in the food system too, including like butchers. We've, we've talked about this meat problem that you're bringing up as well. Of You know, how do you get, we can grow a lot of beef and other meat here, but where do you get it processed in a way that you can sell it in a package that people can buy rather than buy a half a cow or whatever that a lot of people are nervous about doing or just don't have the means to do. There's all these barriers and you're talking about, you know, rule changes and different things like that. All these barriers to more local food. Yet at the same time, more and more of us are like, yeah, local food. We need more of that. No, the consumer is screaming for it. And so yeah. we, we, we feel poised to do very well. We've got actually, since we've um, posted some things on Facebook and some different outlets about what we're doing, we've had nothing but a tremendous outpouring of excitement. And, and that, that solidifies in our mind that the direction we're going is correct. But yes, to your point, the regulations are so cumbersome and so difficult to get around. And just so you know, we've been working through this process of trying to vertically integrate for about three and a half years. And we're getting closer. But um, I would venture to say, and if you ask my wife later, we've said the heck with it a couple times. And then we say, well... That's got to be draining. It is draining. Take a toll. It is draining. And and like with our store, here's here's another example of of regulation. Um, We're taking an old gas station that has been vacant for almost 20 years. Um, Pumps and everything have been removed. Department of Ecology is written off. It has taken us two years to go through the city process. Hmm. From what we understand from our engineering firm that's been helping us, the city's actually been pretty decent to work with. Um, So here's an engineer that a company that does work all throughout the West Coast, um, does a lot of engineering for Taco Time, Dutch Brothers, Costco. And they're basically telling me that two-year process is fast and that we should not... And you're just trying to have a store, nothing crazy fancy or complicated, just a place to have your products for people to buy. We are trying to create... (laughs) We're trying to take a building that's been vacant for 20 years and has generated zero tax revenue. We're trying to create that into a viable drive-through store and employ another 14 people that directly impact the community. Oh, and provide an awesome product that lowers the carbon footprint of the product in general to our community that wants it. And so we haven't even put a nail in the wall because of some of these rules. And so you start to understand why you drive through small towns and there's only corporations that have all the businesses in town because they have a huge pot of money that they can sit on forever and go through these cumbersome processes. And again, the city of Buckley has been great. I have the folks we've worked with there have been great. Um, they didn't put all the rules in place, uh, but, but the system in general is ridiculous. Um, and I know there was good intentions behind all the rules, and some of them make a lot of sense, but, man, it makes it difficult. 
I mean, yeah, we got to keep an eye. I, I think the, the sweet spot is keep an eye towards the spirit of what those rules may have been trying to accomplish, but also step back and look at the big picture and prioritize, you know, what's the most important stuff here? Seems yes. like I've been saying this a lot lately with a lot of different things, but so often the, the perfect becomes the enemy of the good. Where, you know, a slight rule change that may do one tiny little thing that, okay, maybe that's good, maybe not, but if it makes it unfeasible to have, you know produce, for someone to produce local food, well, is that really better from, from the big picture? Yeah, and I, I don't know how to answer those questions. Um, I know that, like, Haley and I, we've, we've had our congresswoman out for dinner. We've had her, her son, and her husband um, on our farm, and we've just sat down. And, and I, I would say to your listeners and your viewers, um, what's been very eye-opening to Haley and I with going back to D.C. and, and dealing with our local congresswoman, um, and, we, and we don't see eye-to-eye -eye politically as far as party, um, but we've sat down and talked to her. She's listened, and she's got things done for us. And I don't think enough folks understand our political process Mm. Uh, whether you agree with their politics or not, that person is your representative and yep. they work for you. Yep. Um, so, for instance, because we've reached out to our congresswoman and we've taken time, she's then reciprocated through her office and we've been able to have conversations. Uh, we, in fact, you speak about beef. I was on a panel with uh, the WSU, uh, the Washington State Department of Agriculture with several different beef processors and several different farmers explaining the woes that we've just talked about. Yeah. And it's not a fast process. It's very arduous. But if we don't have more people and more um, community members reach out and say, hey, I would like to buy meat from these people. Can you make it easier? Um, not less safe. People always seem to assume that easier means less safe. No. It just means let's make a pathway to keep food safe, but keep it reasonable to, in, to, to process it. Uh, for instance, we met with the undersecretary about two weeks ago, the undersecretary of rural development, um, in part because we won the award for the value-added grant. And we explained to them that there's a lot of grant money and a lot of different things, but there's nothing in there for equipment. Why? Why would there be nothing in there for the biggest part of your cost for processing is that in pur on purpose? I don't want to be a conspiracy theorist, but those are questions that need to be asked. Why? The biggest part of our expense is equipment, and yet there's no funding for it. That's a question that, need, that, that I asked the undersecretary, and we asked our congresswoman, and, and now they're asking. And so we need more folks to do that. We need more farmers to do that. Um, and listen, a lot of farmers are just, they're good at farming, and they want to just farm. And yeah, they we, don't want to have to go be their own lobbyist yeah, and, and, and make all these calls and do all this political stuff and play that whole game. They just want to raise animals and crops and make food. Not everybody has a public relations and marketing degree like myself and, and a communications degree like my wife does. And I never understood what God was doing with that. But now in the last five years, I guess he knows what he's doing because we've been using those degrees um, and our ability to go and talk. But, yes, not every farmer wants to do that. Some of them are just darn good at farming. Um, and that's what we want. Yes. We don't want – we want farmers to be great at farming. Yes. We, you know, if, if they can't be in the business unless they are also good at PR, their own PR, that's kind of sad. I mean, yes. I understand why it can be a thing. And it's something that I've been saying for a long time. It's part of the reason why I do this podcast is because I want to – hear these stories, share these stories so more people can hear what's going on. 
But at the same time, a farmer shouldn't have to be a PR expert well, to I'm, be able to, to you know, stay in the good graces of whoever is overseeing them, so to speak. Yeah, and, and, and there's organizations, like I, I'm on the board of the Western Organic Dairy Producers, and, and so, for instance, last night, yesterday I worked a 12-hour day. Um, my, my main employee, I have a really awesome employee, but he was on his day off, and so I had just a really long day. And, and that's par for course. But then I had a two-and-a-half-hour uh, Zoom meeting for my board. Uh, I got four kids at home, too. So my wife and my kids take a back seat, right? And, and we do that because, one, it's good for me to be in the know and understand. Two, our board advocates for dairy farmers, organic dairy farmers in the West Coast. But it's very difficult. And not everybody has the aptitude to want to do that. And to be honest with you, last night I didn't want to do it either. Yeah, that was good. I was on the call and and I learned things and and uh, but yeah, it's it's it is unfortunate at times that we have to put on so many hats. And most farmers do a really good job of it, but it's getting harder and harder. And so I am basically taking anything that we've made, Haley and I, any progress we've made as far as equity or whatever you want to call it, the last 10 years, we're essentially doubling down on the poker table. Hmm. And we're going to take all that and we're going to bet on ourselves and say, hey. Well, and you're betting on your community. You're betting yeah. on local food and feeding this region. We are. And, and with that comes these battles. Yeah. Um, so, again, I, I really want to say thank you. If any of the people that have supported us, whether it's the, the NRCS and the, the uh, Washington Farmland Trust and – and, and all the people that have carried notes for us, I, I'm looking at you guys in the face, but we've had just a tremendous amount of people help each other. And that's one of those weird, unique things in the farming industry. Yeah. Um, people do things financially that don't make sense to help another farmer out. And I'm hoping... Yeah, a lot of people don't believe that stuff. Like, why would you do that? Well, no, they do. Well, that's what the farming community does. No, they do. And, and uh, you know, our society in whole, if we would operate that way a little more... If we would operate like farmers a little more, we would be a lot better off. Um, and we have been um, huge recipients. Uh, I, I've got a brother that sold his feed, and at times I didn't know how I was going to pay him. And, uh, and we still talk, and we still buy feed from him. And uh, fortunately, we've, we've been in a lot better position in the last year or, or so. Um, but that's just been a huge blessing, right? And, and, yes, he was my brother. But I've also had a local guy that puts up hay. That put up pay for me when I didn't know how I was going to pay him, hmm. and and uh, I mean maybe I'm I'm sharing too much, but th man, what no, that's I that's the real deal because people could sit back and say, well, you're probably you know doing all right, you're making money. It's like, no, farming has its ups and downs. You make money sometimes, you lose money other times, and you don't know how you're going to pay the bills. No, I mean we we had an instance in uh, sixteen and seventeen where it took us four years to pay back the two bad years in 16 and 17. Uh, and we don't have a huge war chest. You know, we literally, we started from nothing. We yeah. took our 401ks, we drained them, got a government loan, rented a farm. Um, the Lord's blessed us, but it's, it's been very gruesome at times and tiring. Um, and, and we keep chugging along. Um, at this point in our career, like I said, in two days, it'll be 10 years. We felt very blessed um, by the partners that we've had, but we also realized that there's not a sustainable future here if we don't vertically integrate. Mm. Um, and so we're praying that, like you said, the community has said, yes, we want this. The consumer has said, yes, we want this. Um, so far, a couple of the groups that we're 
we're going to for funding have been like, yes, we get it. We need one more looking at USBA uh, to come through for us. And, and then we can bring our dream to the community. Yep. Uh, I'll tell you one more little cool note. Um, this gas station was a service station and uh, the gal that owned it, her husband had passed away quite some time ago. And she's been offered many times to sell the property mm. and she hasn't. And uh, of course we didn't know this until after we made our deal with her. Uh, I'll tell you, she sold us the property and carried an, is carrying the note, which if not for that, there's no way it would have happened. And that's almost unheard of today. Yeah. Um, and she gave us a year without a payment. Uh, now, unfortunately, COVID didn't allow us to use that year as ho- good as we'd hoped, yeah. but still, who does that, right? And so we asked her and she said, you know what? You're the type of business that I was hoping for to come here. And so that makes you feel pretty good. And yeah. the fact that we're able to bless her with this, this location, being able to get out of it, and the fact that we can take this little building that's been sitting and it's been an eyesore for 20 years and make it a vibrant part of the community, again, um, man, that's cool to think about, right? It's, like, I get excited. Awesome. You, you, if it, In this meeting, I step back from the grind of every day trying to do this, yep. and I say, hey, it's still worth trying to do it. Absolutely. Um, and so... And, and community coming together to make it happen, too. Yeah. Like we, what, the, what this woman, the woman who owned it, did to help you guys. I mean, that's the kind of small town community, help each other get better kind of stuff that I think a lot of people feel is missing in our society right now. No, and, and, and I agree with that 100%. And, and that's where we've been, I would say, more receivers of that end. And our hope and goal is that we can crush this out of the park and then we can be givers Mm. um we've done what we've can in areas where we could but i'll be honest the last 10 years has been a struggle um by god's grace and hard work and and awesome partners we're still here um and we're hoping for the same thing moving forward here and and like i said we've have a huge support through the community now let's convert that into dollars folks Uh, (laughs) let's buy and let's let's buy local like we say we want to yeah. Um, when we open up. And so, um, yeah, yeah, I get it. I always look at it like I'm going to be spending money on food either way. I'd rather those dollars get as close to the person that grew that food as possible. You know, and if I have to pay 10, 20% more for my food, I, as I've said before, I'm not a rich person, but I'm not totally destitute either. So I may have to not buy something else because I'm spending a little bit more for my food if I can get that money as close as possible to the people growing it. That's important to me. Well, so here's some crazy statistics for for your listeners and viewers. Um, So in the 60s and 70s, the United States population spent about 20% of their income for food. Uh, In 2013, it was 9%. In 2019, it was 6%. Now, I will tell you that that 6%... That didn't come out of the retailer, and it didn't come out of the distributor, and it didn't come out of the processor. It came directly out of the farmer. And so there's a, there's a, reason, um, there's a reason that we've dropped down to 1.5% of the population feeding the rest of the population. And that's stuff that needs to change, and we're hoping we can be a little part of that change. Yeah. And, folks, you need to, we need to spend more on our food. I, nobody, yep. nobody wants to hear that. but when Especially you spend- right now, rising food prices, and I'm in this weird place because I've been on this journey with this podcast and the advocacy that I've done as well as just my background, and I'm like, 
I'm here for it. Like, yeah, it's not. I, I'm not going to be able to buy as many other things. But honestly, you know, how how often are we making that choice? We haven't had to make that choice forever. All, new TV or food. You know, most people aren't faced with that, and I don't really want to be faced with that. But if I am, bring it on. Well, I, I, that's important to me. Let me give you a cool example. Uh, it's not a cool example. It's a sad example. But um, so we race steers, and. Um, we sell those steers in the, the way we can. We can sell them in quarter, eighths, halves, and holes. So that means that basically we, we take them to a local butcher, and, and then they're processed, and people buy ahead of time, and they own basically a percentage of that animal. So I can raise an animal, and we can sell it that way, and we sell it for about $3,600 per animal. Mm-hmm. If I have to send that same animal to the only processing plant that we have in the state of Washington that I can send it to, I get a $1,200 check. Mm. So here's the fascinating part about that. If you buy that cow from me, you're going to be about $7 a pound. On average, you're going to save about three to $400 on a half a cow compared to what you would pay in the retail store. And oh, by the way, I'm getting the proceeds as opposed... It goes right back to the farm rather than all of the other people with their hands in the... (laughs) Hey, there's people in the middle that we need. Yeah. And and there's people in the middle that are a crucial part of this infrastructure. So I'm not going to throw all those folks under the bus. The problem is, is less and less dollars is getting back to the farmer. And, uh, And the thing is, is I haven't had anybody complain about the meat that we sold them. If they have, they haven't told me. And if you did, come back and tell me. We'll make it better. Um, but it's amazing how surprised people are with the flavor and the taste when you get to an actual cow that was processed and you get one animal. And um, But it just just the, the statistics on that, you figure it out, $3,600 to $1,200. Just so you know, it cost me $1,200 to raise that animal. So I invested two years, and actually more than that, because you got nine, years of preg- nine months of pregnancy. So I've invested almost three years in that animal, and then I get basically what I spent on it. Whereas if I sell it so outright. Your profit is zero. Zero. Zero dollars. And does that include the cost? Does that include your time? No, we don't get paid. We don't. There's, <laughs> so, there's so no it's money not, in our time. There's no time. Yeah, that's crazy. <laughs> but no, and so that's, you know, part of, again, we're trying to figure out an infrastructure so we can sell directly to the consumer on the meat side. We're not there yet. We haven't sorted it out, but we're, yeah. we're hopeful. Um, but yeah, that, that, just so your, your consumer knows, it. You know, if you can buy local from your guy and you can go direct, you actually save money. You got to get a freezer, but you save money. Uh, and your homeowner's insurance will insure the freezer. So make sure you do that too. There you go. <laughs> little helpful note. Get, get a plug-in for the creamery. That's, and, and when are you targeted to hoping to have this up and running? So we were hoping to have this running last fall. And then this thing called COVID hit <laughs> and uh, slowed everything down from yep. permitting to the financial side uh, to everything. Um, now there's been some blessings in the COVID situation for us, some funding, um, it's helped us along the way. So not all bad. Um, but our hope and goal is to finalize our funding in the next two months. And our hope and goal is to start construction, um, by early summer. Our absolute dream would be to go by middle of summer to end of summer, but most likely we hope to open by fall. Um, a lot of moving parts, a lot of things outside of our control, uh, again, we're a year behind where we wanted to be. Um, inflation has made things difficult yeah. Um, yeah. with pricing of products and building. We've had to readjust our numbers several times. Um, so that's, that's made it a little bit more difficult. Yeah. So what's it going to be called? So we will have a creamery on the farm called Mount Rainier Creamery. 
And then we will have a marketplace. It's going to be a drive-through market where we carry all the local products we've talked about. So that'll be Mount Rainier Creamery and Market. Um, and then we will be processing our own milk from our cows here. Uh, it'll be um, the bulk of it will be Jersey milk, um, and we have been breeding A two A two genetics. Um, so if you get a chance, to look that up. It basically yeah. is the design of the enzyme that is in the milk. It can make uh, a big difference for folks that struggle with lactose. Um, and so, yeah, we're going to be doing milk. Uh, we're going to be doing some flavored milks. We'll be doing butter uh, and then ice cream. Everybody's excited about the ice cream. And then, again, we're going to be carrying some other folks' local cheeses. We're hoping to find a baker, um, as much local produce. It's be um, a local food hub. Yeah. What now, you have going there. So we're, uh, to, in all transparency, unfortunately, there's not a lot of produce on this side of the mountain. So we'll be within a 50 to 60 mile radius with Yakima and, yep. and some different areas. We'll be bringing in fruit. Again, we're going to be going directly to the farmer. Um, and so we'll be returning more dollars back to those folks. Yeah, I, I'd much rather have my produce come from Yakima than from Florida or Mexico or yeah, exactly. China. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know? I think the only the only difference is is I've got a cousin that's producing oranges in the Central Valley of California, and so we might bring some citrus in from California oh, from well, my cousin. You can't really grow. No, you can't citrus much closer than that. So that, that that's that's all good. <laughs> another another exciting thing we're looking at is we're looking at going direct with the seafood um, uh, producer out of the the Tacoma area, and uh, once or twice a month, we're going to try to uh, present live crab uh, awesome. up on the plateau, which nobody has. And so we're, we're kind of excited about that. We'll see how that shakes out. Uh, again, we'll be going direct to a person. And so everything we're going to be doing, we're going to be trying to go direct as possible. Um, and again, there's, there's folks that are in the middle that are necessities. Um, but we're going to be trying our best to, um, you know, go as direct as possible yeah. to put as more, as many dollars back in the pocket of the, producer so yeah we're hoping we're hoping fall 2022 um and and we're poised to do that pending um anything else crazy and the world's crazy right now so who who, who knows what's going on where can people find you on social media right now so right now we're on facebook um um you know our farm is as providence farms we've got a whole history there but we have mountaineercreamery.com okay you can also look us up on facebook under the same name Mount Rainier Creamery. Um, we have a really cool introduction video. Uh, I really encourage you to take a look at that. Um, it basically just shows you uh, via drone where the store is located and where the farm is going to be located. Cool. And so cool. when we say local, you can actually see it. You can see it's it. Legit. It's legit. So, um, so take a look at that. It's about three minutes. I, I hear in today's society, three minutes is too long. <laughs> Um, but I think it's worth the watch if you really want to know. Um, we'll have a few more. We worked in collaboration with the, the Dairy Farmers of Washington on that, and so that was really cool. Yep. Um, so And they're a sponsor of this podcast, too. They are, and, and, cool. and we are also Dairy Farmers of Washington. So <laughs> Very uh, good. dollars going to where they need to be. So, Well, thank you so much for having me out, showing me the farm, and sharing this whole story. Uh, Wow, I'm, I'm really pumped to watch what happens, and, and I want to come back here in the fall and see how things are going. Yeah, I, I want you to, and I, I want to say from Haley and I uh, and our farm, uh, you know, thank you for what you're doing, giving a voice back to the farmer. Uh, it means a lot to us, and, and I'm, I'm just grateful you came out today on a windy, cold day and uh, spent time with us. This is, this is Western Washington. Yeah. <laughs> this is what we do. Or hopefully only two more weeks. <laughs> we'll see. This is the Real Food, Real People podcast. These are the stories of the people who grow your food. 